Well, good morning, church. And so this series for two weeks is called Choosing Kingdom Leaders. We're just taking a look at what it means to be leaders in the kingdom and how that's different from the rest of the world and what it means when we signed up for Jesus to influence the world as God has called us to. Uh, and so I'm grateful for the opportunity to, to share this with you. It is in the midst of a, an elder selection time that we're about to begin. And I just want to clarify, last week I I think it was a little confusing how I laid this out. This uh, elder search process or selection process, which we go through every three years or so, uh, is about to happen. And it'll take about three months in all before we confirm all the elders that will, will step into place. But we have about a two-week window. To, uh, you'll be getting more information tomorrow about the details on all this, but uh, that, that we're nominating elders. And a couple things about the nomination process I just want to clarify for you. One is that our current elders that are already in place um, are already a part of that nomination process. You don't need to nominate them. Their their confirmation will come later uh, in the process. So what we're looking for when you nominate are people who are not currently serving as elders. And uh, so I want you to be praying about that, be discerning about that. In fact, we'll have a time of prayer and fasting that's announced next Sunday for the week after that as part of this nomination process because we trust that God will be at work if we submit to him and ask him to be involved. And so uh, I trust that you all be praying about that and taking this seriously. Again, if you're a member, you'll receive a, an email in the more, or tomorrow at some point during the day. And that'll give you all the details for how to nominate and how to do this online. If you have any questions after you try to uh, walk through that process, feel free to call our church office and talk to Denise Taylor, and she'd love to help you through that. But I want to introduce also to you a few uh, of our leaders who uh, are helping with our elder selection team. So if Tommy Doan and Jake Sanders and John Rainey would come to the stage, uh, these three men are, are, are serving in a role of trying to help with the tabulating of, of the nominations and walking through with our elders that process as well and the leaders of our church. Tommy has led this process before, but I wanted you to see each of these three men just so that you'll know if you have questions about this process at any point, feel free to talk to any one of them in this process and they'd love to answer your questions, clear up any concerns you might have. And they're going to do a lot, a lot of good to help us through this. And so another thing that we do ask is, uh, this is different from some other churches I've been a part of. So if you're new to us, one of the things we ask when you're nominating elders is that you would go and talk to that person that you're nominating ahead of time so that they'll be aware of that. And they'll hear also your encouragement that you see them in that important role. And they can begin that process of discernment if that nomination actually comes through. And so I encourage you to do that today, this coming week, in the week to come as you're nominating. Uh, have that conversation with uh, the elder that you'd like to nominate so that they can be preparing their minds and, and be aware of that as well. Right now, I want to say a prayer over this process and over this team, as grateful as I am for them, that God would be involved and would work in these uh, days and weeks ahead. God, we, uh, we ask your, uh, your presence and your activity and your action in this process, God. We, we don't want to be selecting elders on our own, and we trust that your spirit that you have filled with each one of us who are uh, people who call Jesus Lord is involved in this as well. So I thank you for uh, Tommy and Jake and John, and for the uh, willingness they have to, to serve in this capacity. And I pray for all of us as we discern uh, the future in this important time in our, uh, our, our region, our country, God, and in our world, that we can be a church that can be salt and light, and that we can select leaders who can help us in stepping out in those important ways. I thank you for all those who do serve, who have served in the past, and for all those you're preparing in the days to come. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. And God's people said, amen. Thank you all very much. One last note, I just want to encourage you um, to, be, to participate in this process. In a church our size and with two services, sometimes it can feel like 
maybe you don't know all the people who are out there that could be nominated or who's best, uh, but you do know people who are in your uh, you know, purview, who are in your small groups, who are in your area of influence that have cared for you, that have walked beside you, that you see as influencers and leaders. And so I would love for each, as many, as many of us as possible to be involved in this. So please check that email tomorrow. Please be praying about this. And you'll hear about this again next week as we have a time of prayer and fasting. Looking forward to that. Well, this week, I want to leave you as we close today with a question that I think is a helpful question as we discern who those leaders ought to be. But I'll save that question for a little bit later in our service. I want to tell you about uh, something that I've been trying to do that hasn't been going all that well. I've been, tr- I've been setting out over the last few years in the church uh, on a quest to convince people of something. And let me tell you, it's not going all that well. My contention, my quest is this. The church is in need of more judgmental leaders. Now, that sounds a little bit strange as I say it, but before you pass judgment on my judgmentalistic quest, uh, give me a hearing. Let me clarify a little bit what I'm saying today. Many churches seem to be quite judgmental of those in the culture around them who've not committed their lives to Jesus. That's not the kind of judgment that I'm talking about. After all, Paul clearly says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that's not really our business. In fact, pay attention to what Paul says. This is writing to a situation of church discipline, a struggle in the church at Corinth. Listen to what's said to the believers there. This is in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9 and following. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. It's really odd, right? We don't come back to this passage all that often, but Paul says it real clearly. Look, Your business is not to judge those outside. It doesn't make any sense to judge those outside by the standards of Jesus because they've not committed their lives to Jesus. They don't have the Holy Spirit of God working within them. But for those of us who have made that commitment, Paul says we do have standards we judge by. We make sure that we are holding people to the commitment they made in our baptism. But much of the judgment that I see and that I've seen all my life has been about a judgment for those who've not committed their lives to Jesus. But if the world is dark, Is it the darkness's fault or is it the light's fault for not turning itself on and illuminating the room and the world around? No, it's our job as the people of the kingdom of God to light up the places that we are in. So this is not a judgment about those who are outside. My quest for judgmentalism isn't aimed at those outside the church. We need to be more judgmental about those of us inside the church. Now, when I was writing this sermon, I was wondering how awkward it would feel at this moment in the sermon as I say that. And it feels pretty awkward right now. You know my preaching, and you know this is a little bit off kilter what I'm used to, but I, I think this message is important for us to hear as we select leaders. So let me clarify a bit more what I'm advocating and what I'm not. The kind of judgment I'm advocating is not the judgment that I sometimes see go on in circles of young mothers, right? Some of you have experienced this on both sides. Some of you have chosen to be working mothers, or that's the situation you're in, and you feel a judgment from those on the other side, that maybe that's not what's best. Or maybe on the other side, there's others who feel like they made the decision to stay home and, and there's others that judge them that really you ought to be doing other things with your life. That, that's the kind of judgment we need to get rid of in our churches. We need to be able to encourage one another in each stage of life, the situations and decisions we make. 
I'm not talking about the judgment that progressives tend to quietly whisper about those who are more conservative or the judgment that conservatives make about those who are more open. I'm not referring to the judgments many of us tend to make about the worship service we're a part of or the class presentations each week. I'm talking about the kind of judgment that sets us apart as a community of people who are set apart to live as people of the kingdom of God. That's the kind of judgment that we need to offer to one another. Let's see, how do I illustrate this? Let me, let me give an illustration from a TV show that some of you may be involved with and understand. How many of you remember the show on A&E called Intervention? Did any of you see episodes of the show? There's still reruns that run around from time to time. Now, in the first part of that show, it was a heartbreaking show that would tell the story of someone who was caught up in a cycle of addiction. And their family noticed this and tried to start an intervention. Some of you understand this because you've been a part of these kinds of conversations. You've had that difficulty in your family. And the first part of the show introduces you to the addict and how their dependence on substances causes problems for those around them. The second part of the show is set up to do something completely different. The second part of the show shows the family and the concern the family has to really reach out to this family member, to show them their love and concern, but also to speak truth into their lives to say that things should be different for them. And when you watch that show, you see this struggle between the first part, the second part, the family that cares. And you're watching all this, and some of you know this dynamic in your own family, and some of you are watching this wondering what's going to happen by the end of the episode. And as the story goes on, the story gets deeper and deeper into the story, and usually you see the same kind of thing happen. At first, the the family kind of shares what's going on, shares the examples of what's happening. You can tell how much this family cares deeply for the person who's struggling. And then the story centers in on the person who's at the center of this struggle that's being shared, part of this intervention that doesn't really want to be in his or her seat. And often you'll see the person who's at the center of the attention deny their addiction in this show. They deny that there's any problem here. They can actually control things much better than it seems. And then they begin to look around the circle and they begin to show, wait a minute, who in the world are you to be judging me in this situation? We all have this defense mechanism in us, don't we? That when someone judges us or brings something to our attention that we could do better, we tend to look around and think, well, who in the world do you think you are? But there are some people who are willing to admit in the midst of this, that yes, I do have a problem, and I do need to seek help. And in those moments, you get a glimpse of what the best kind of judgment looks like. Good judgment, judgment that the kingdom of God calls us to do, calls us to restore and to save people, not to cause destruction in our judgment. Because there are many families with addicts where no one knows quite how to do that. Some of you have been caught in those situations where you've wanted to step out and do something with a friend and you you haven't had the courage to do it or you knew it wouldn't be received well. But the healthiest families are those that are able to speak a word of saving judgment, a word that says we love you and we want to see you better. And the healthiest kinds of churches are churches that can do the same thing. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul has to do the hard thing in this scene because there's a stepson who's sleeping with his stepmother and it's, it's causing all kinds of problems in the community around them. And Paul is trying to say, look, this can't go on. You can't just call on the grace of God. You've got to be able to step in because this isn't right and it's causing harm to the body of Christ. And Paul loves the man and he loves the stepmother and he loves the church enough to speak up and say something. Now hear me closely this morning. Redemptive judgment is the least common form of judgment that many of us have experienced. More often, it feels like someone is out to get us. More often, it's 
a judgment that doesn't seek to restore. And that's why choosing leaders is so important for the churches we're a part of. But in American culture, we don't tend to choose leaders like that. If you think about around about us, about how our elections go, well, we, we think about things differently. In his book, I Wear the Black Hat, Chuck Klosterman talks about how Americans select leaders. And he wrote this actually before the last election. Um, And so some of the data that he gives is actually talking about the six presidents before. But listen to this quote that he shares. He he writes, America is a looks-based superficial society. Everyone accepts this, and only the naive disagree. Yet we still somehow underrate its cultural persuasion. Physical appearance is the most important element of almost every human interaction we have. Not the only element, but the one that is most fundamental and expansive. One of my deepest fears about democracy is that for the rest of my life, presidential elections will be dominated by whichever candidate is more conventionally attractive. In the last six presidential elections, the younger candidate has won five times, a stark contrast to the historical record. But could there ever be a dwarf president? No way. Could a modern-day Thomas Jefferson win a primary if he also had a severe skull deformity? Nay, such a scenario will not happen in my lifetime or in the lifetime of this book. And we can look at that and look at our culture and think, well, that's a little bizarre. But if you look back to the people of God throughout the centuries, it hasn't been much different with us. If you have your Bibles this morning, open with me, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel 9. Last week, we actually read a story from 1 Samuel chapter 8. And in chapter 8, the people of God are looking around them at all the other nations, and they decide, we want a king to lead us, just like all the other nations have. So they look around, and God feels rejected, and he says, look, if you want to do that, just want you to know, I'm not going to hear your cries when you cry out to me. But they say, no, we want a king. So listen to how they decide on the king they're going to have as, they, as we turn to chapter 9. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bechorath, the son of Aphia of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than anyone else. Notice how the text talks about Saul. It describes him by his external appearance. He was a handsome man who was a head taller than the rest. Sounds like a playground selecting teams contest, doesn't it? That's how it happens on the elementary playground. You choose based on external appearance. But when it's time to pick Israel's second king, I want you to notice they select things far differently because it didn't go all that well the first time around. In fact, listen to God's advice to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16. When Samuel's trying to figure out the right next king the next time around. This is 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. In a sense, God is saying to Samuel, Hey, don't do it like you did last time. Last time you chose based on appearances and look where you ended up. No, 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 you've got to look deeper. You've got to look at the heart. And even though David made numerous mistakes when looking externally, Paul relates back to this story a little bit later in Scripture in Acts chapter 13. I want you to listen to the description of David from Paul's perspective years later. This is Acts 13, verse 22. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him. I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. I can't say enough about this principle that Paul relates back to, that God gives Samuel the second time around. 
And I want to encourage you in this, that when you write down names to nominate, don't make the mistake that Israel made. Don't look at the outward appearance or at the resume or any of those things. I want you to look deeper. Look to the heart of who this person is. Don't look at a resume or, or fundraising ability. These are the kinds of ways we sometimes have made decisions in our church experience. And don't make the mistake that we sometimes make just assuming that if someone has years and wrinkles, that's the only thing as well. That's also a viewing of things through outward appearance. Some younger people have gifts. Some older people have gifts. Look to the heart. Look underneath what we see on the outside. And here's what's interesting. When you look at those lists in Timothy and Titus that we look at for those qualities of leaders that we're supposed to decide with, the churches I grew up in weren't all that consistent about following those qualities. We were careful to observe uh, the qualities that were easier to judge. For instance, we never had a, an elder growing up who had two wives. We didn't have all that many in our church who were in that position, I'll be honest, but we never had an elder growing up who had children who weren't baptized because that was easy to tell. We never had an elder growing up who was a recent convert because you can tell those sorts of things. And we never had elders uh, without those qualities because those qualities were the easy ones in the list to be able to judge. They're based on external appearance. If they had two wives, we probably would have known about that. If they had children who weren't believers, that would have been seen. If they weren't recent converts, we'd still see the water fresh behind their ears. But to be honest, I have no idea if the elders in my church growing up were lovers of money. I had no idea really when we were selecting them if they were sincere, because that's a whole lot harder to judge. If they were recent converts, we could tell that, but pursuing honest gain, that's a whole lot harder to determine. And as I thought about how the churches I grew up in, and likely some of the ones that you grew up in, were selecting elders, I realized that we made the same mistake that Israel made when they were selecting their first king. We often judged elders by their external appearance rather than the matters of the heart that lay underneath the harder things to examine. Which convicts me when I return to God's words in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. Listen to this again. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. If you were divorced, you weren't about to be an elder in the church I grew up in. But there may have been elders who lacked sincerity because it was so much harder to judge those things. Which brings me to a verse that's haunted me for a long time now, about a decade actually. It was a decade ago this week that I started preaching my first sermon at a church. Hard to believe it's been that long, but this is one of those passages that has stuck with me as I thought about what it means to be a leader. And one I would leave with you if you have that desire to lead also. This is James chapter 3, verse 1. Listen to this. James writes, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, I've always heard this preached as if there's a vertical truth about this passage, and I think the vertical truth is there. There's a standard that God holds leaders to. Teachers, too, in the church. In fact, this is one of the main standards God gives elders, that they ought to be those who are will, able to teach. And there's a reality that God holds, I believe, leaders to how we lead and how we teach. We're held accountable to those standards. But I believe there's a horizontal truth to this verse as well. 
Teachers will be judged more strictly by other humans. And if you don't believe that, I've got a box of letters and emails I'd be glad to pass on to you from the last decade. Earlier in the sermon, I I told you about the importance of being a church of judgment. That starts with judgmental leaders. And here's where I want to clarify that point I made earlier. On the show intervention, the first response of the person who receives the intervention is usually to make accusations at the people around them to say, well, who in the world do you think you are to speak up about me? In other words, I see the log. Why in the world are you trying to pull this speck out? And I think that's why it's important that the elders are, as Scripture talks about, above reproach. That's the language that's given. Now, that's a quite, quite a high standard. I mean, how many of us would put on our resume when we were asked the question, are you above reproach, and say, absolutely, no question. I think all of us are a little nervous to kind of say that thing about ourselves. Right? We're above reproach. But I think it's important because we realize that those who are leaders will be judged more strictly. When you step up to lead in a church, you're inviting reproach and judgment. It's part of the deal. And here's the problem with so many of our elder search processes through the generations. In many churches, when elders are selected, they're chosen based on their ability to represent a certain position in a church. Or they're selected because they're business leaders who seem to look good on the outside. But all of that really doesn't matter when it comes to discerning the best future for a church going forward as an eldership. Because when we select leaders, when we select elders, we aren't just picking leaders who will make decisions for us. We're picking the kind of people who will show up and judge us when we need interventions of our own. So here's the question I want to leave with you as you make these decisions, as you pray through who you will select in the days to come. Who is the person you would most want to lead an intervention in your life if your life spins out of control? Who is it that if in the next three years you need someone to intervene and to bring righteous judgment for the sake of restoring you back to the commitment you made in your baptism? Who is it that you want to show up? Not someone that can make good decisions, but it's easy to say, well, who are you to judge? But it's the person in your life that you trust, that you know they have your best interest at heart. And when they give that judgment, your response is, I'm sure glad you were the one who showed up to my door. Who do you want on your front doorstep in the moment you need the most? When you want to give up on the commitment you made in your baptism. Because if that happens, you want the leader who's above reproach. Because otherwise... You'll be able to deny everything that's going on and the truth they have to reveal because you can't trust it in the midst of the logs that we tend to pull out of each other's eyes. This is a really important process. And I'd love to share a lot more in these messages. And I want to encourage you this week to be seeking out in Scripture those places that talk about the qualities of godly leaders. Look at Ezekiel 34 that describes what good shepherds are and those who aren't. Look at the list in Timothy and Titus that Paul gives to these leaders, but select people based not on the standards of this world. Select people who will be able to stand up and be leaders in the kingdom of God as we desire it best. And who is it? Who's that person you want showing up in that moment you need righteous judgment most? Let's pray as we close our time this morning. Oh God, through the generations you have used people, yes, imperfect people, to bring your message to others and to pastor uh, your flock, and and to lead your church into the 
times to come. God, we are in a stage in our lives where we need people who can lead full of grace and full of truth. People who live above reproach, God, and are people that are soft-hearted people who hear us and lead us to the next step in our journey of discipleship. God, I know those people are out here, God. I thank you for the faithfulness of elders in the past in this church who've led so faithfully, who've given of themselves in sacrifice, who've been willing to undergo the judgment of others because that's part of what it means to be a leader. God, I pray you would raise up more to walk beside them, to continue to prod us on in our journey of faith, that we might be the church that you call us to be in the 21st century here in Collin County. God, you're not done in your work in this church or in churches in our community or in the kingdom of God in North America. You're still uh, prodding us forward. You're calling us forward to be more faithful than we've ever been before, to be more holy than we have ever been before, to be more called out and committed than we have ever been before. God, I thank you for those that you're preparing for that opportunity to lead us in the days ahead. I pray this prayer in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.